You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered, a writer and a novelist. His newest work of nonfiction is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. His newest novel is A Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. Always fun. And uh, we had a, a, a special pleasure this month, a 1,000-plus page pleasure of Haruki Murakami's latest novel. It's actually a trilogy all put together in one book for us here in the United States because we don't have enough bricks to seal ourselves up from the world outside. Yeah, it came out in Japan a couple of years ago in, well, three volumes, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, and now it's in one volume, almost 1,000 pages, as you say, with two translators. Uh, I guess... The, f- the uh, first two volumes are translated by Jay Rubin, and then the third is translated by Philip Gabriel. Not that I can, I couldn't tell much of a difference, but maybe because I was so caught up in the story, which is absolutely wonderful. It's it's really superb, and, and it's it's such a a, a wonderful take on um, you know 1984 as it. You know, kind of uh, alludes to. Yeah, we should say the title is One Q84, um, playing off, as you say, against 1984. Uh, I, the Q in there is uh, what Murakami calls uh, a letter that bears a question. It's a, so, I One Q84 is an alternate alternate realm, and uh, I guess it, he poses it as a kind of question against the actual 1984. Uh, just brilliant bit of business that opens it. Uh, this uh, young woman who is a, uh, a very attractive 30-something uh, Tokyo physical trainer named Aomame, which in Japanese means green peas, um, <laughs> She's a woman with a murderous avocation. She uh, carries out assassinations of uh, male pigs, as in, in this particular instance, she's on her way to kill a businessman who's a a wife abuser and torturer. And she gets stuck in in her cab in a traffic jam on this elevated Tokyo roadway, and she has a plan to get this guy when he's still in his hotel room before he goes to a business meeting. So she jumps out of the cab, scoots around the stalled cars, and climbs down the street level by means of this construction site stairway, but it, which is actually a kind of rabbit hole because when she gets to the bottom of the stairs, she's in, not in 1984, she's in 1Q84, uh, which is an alternate realm. She first notices that if, uh, you remember when she uh, she sees that the style of police uniforms have are different from what she had noticed earlier, and then she looks up in the sky and she sees two moons. Um, so she's in another place. Although she goes on with her job of uh, her mission of uh, assassinating this businessman, very neat kind of uh, what is it? A, a needle into the uh, top of the spine. To the back of the brain, of the, the, I guess, was that the cervical cortex? 
Well, he does a fantastic job, I think, of creating this alternate reality and immersing us in it and informing us of what it's like there. Mm-hmm. And what's really nice about uh, Murakami stuff is that he's so good at describing something else somewhere else somebody else doing something that seems very odd and surreal to us yet it speaks to our world and to our lives and we can really immerse ourselves in this kind of like uh alternate version of our world you know in, in a way it's a it's now that i think of it it's a kind of variation on that uh the the enormously uh inventive technique of Tolstoy's, which is uh, what is uh, the, the, the Russian literary critic uh, calls it uh, an estrangement technique. That is, you describe something ordinary that we see all the time in such a way that you see it almost as if for the first time. Exactly. Yes, and he uses. What's nice too is that when you read this uh, work, you don't feel like you're in a in a work of a genre fiction, you don't feel like you're in a work of literary fiction. You just feel like you're in this place mm-hmm. that has so many connections to you. And he he creates his characters so carefully. He creates his language is really crafted, um, even through the translation. Where you know occasionally you're going to get uh, it's inevitable that you're going to get some hiccups in that, but even with that, you still get this uh, feeling uh, of you know a. a being in a real place, and that place is uh, is our world, just as kind of jarringly. It reminds me, in a way, of like uh, the when you first go your first day in high school. You know yeah. how how everybody knows what that's like. Everybody's been there, but it seems so strange though when you're there. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is kind of like your first day in in life school. <laughs> Interesting. Well, two two things. Uh, with respect to the language, this this translation really flows along in beautiful fashion, and, and, and it, it reminded me. And there's no reason why I'm making this comparison, except it's just a matter, of, I guess, taste. That reminded me of a, like one huge William Gibson novel. Uh, dealing oh, interesting. With yes, you know, and and that makes sense because Gibson, so his future is so taken with with. Uh, you know the Orient and and and, and Japanese culture. It is. <laughs> That's exactly right. But it has that kind of uh, lovely flow. Mm-hmm. Um, it just zooms along. Um, so you're not really well. You do care that it's thousand, almost a thousand pages because you don't want it to end, mm-hmm. which is amazing. <laughs> uh, in our age of short takes and a you know. Brief attention spans. It, um, it really doesn't feel like you're reading a thousand pages, though, because it no. because it is so uh, engrossing and, and such a and it's really quite a quick read. It's not it's not something you slog through in any by any means. And it, I think that has to do with the plot, which I mm-hmm. mean, ultimately, it's it's this uh, enormously sophisticated romance plot, mm-hmm. and literal literal romance between Aomame Mame and. Uh, and a kid she went to grade school with, uh, a writer named Tengo Kawani, Kawana, mm-hmm. who, well, a kid who grows up to be a writer. And um, both tracks, I mean, they're alternate chapters. You go from 
from Miss um, Greenpeace to Tango and then back to her and then back to him for almost a thousand pages. And it's two, these two tracks are inevitably moving towards uh, conjunction. Mm-hmm. And so the pace, I mean, by the, by the time you're about three-quarters of the way through and you realize that that is going to happen, you might have hoped it was going to happen, but you know it's going to happen at a certain point. You, you just can hardly turn the pages quickly enough to get to that. Right, and and to do that in with regards to a romance set in a, an alternate world that looks a lot like ours, but is different from ours in many ways and similar to ours in many ways, with these novels within a novel's uh, thoughts about fiction, um, the just the strangeness uh, no. of of you know a world where there's a second moon. I mean, to to do that is really just an amazing accomplishment. He's, and I, I think this is his his masterwork. Uh, I mean, he's dealt with the fantasy element in in many novels and dozens and dozens of stories. They they almost all seem like experiments building to this wonderfully, uh, beautifully achieved and sustained conclusion. And I, I think, too, this is his most, uh, uh, of his work, uh, this reads most like his short work, <laughs> interestingly enough. I mean, it's as cohesive as all his short work, even though it's gigantic and mm-hmm. fi- and filled with mm-hmm. all sorts of interesting discursions. It's his most cohesive work, I think, yes. um, other than any of his short stories. Yes, I would say that's true. And that you have the added... The added factor of picking this up and holding it as you read over the course of, oh, you know, five days, seven days, eight days, however long it takes you to read it, is great exercise. (laughs) Adds another dimension to reading. Another dimension. Yeah, what, about four and a half inches? (laughs) Right. Uh, Speaking of other dimensions and... uh, Or other dementia, if you're thinking of the Percival Everett. Yes, yes, um, assumption. Yeah, and what what an what an interesting a novel this is. Mm-hmm. It's very it's um, it looks like a mystery at first, because you have a, a, a sheriff protagonist here, and he he you know it looked very simple kind of uh, uh, setup. He's moved from. Uh, Moved to New Mexico from Maryland. His name is Ogden. He's uh, half black, and you know, so he's. It's pretty simple. Looks pretty simple at first. Mm-hmm. And we get kind of. It's like uh, in many ways, it's almost like a little uh, collection of short stories. There's three, one, two, three mysteries, and but as as the novel unfolds, as the story unfolds, and as we reach through these layers, we realize there's a lot more going on here than just a simple mystery. Yes, he's out He's out on duty, and he gets called to this uh, old woman's house in rural New Mexico, and and then the next thing you know, you're reading about her death, that she's found dead. And I, I went back and reread those first couple of little sequences about that, and I couldn't figure it out. And so, I, But I went on reading... And you finally, by the last third of this novel, you do figure it out in a big way, and you realize uh, there is much more going on beneath the surface of the novel than you uh, could have imagined. 
Yeah, it's an it's a really nice, uh, um, effective use of the mystery genre because in, in many ways, um, it's easy to step back and say all novels worth reading are essentially mysteries. Yeah. You want to find out what's going to happen. You don't know. Something's happened, going to happen. You're going to want to find out. And so Everett kind of uses the genre to uh, of mystery to speak to the genre of a uh, novel yeah. itself. Remember in the second section, he, there's a, he, he's got a case where he's uh, searching for a missing tourist, a young woman who's disappeared and supposedly killed by a a guy with only one hand, and he goes to Denver and uh, mm-hmm. consults with the Denver police, and this woman, this uh, female Denver police detective says to him, sounds like you got yourself a mystery, and which I thought, yeah, I do too, because I still don't know what's going on, but I do want to find out, and I keep reading. Hey. Uh, I think he does one thing he does really well is with the prose. I mean, he's really got you know the kind of hard boiled kind of prose mm-hmm. down, and that makes makes all the kind of in uh, this is a work of many ways of metafiction that makes all that stuff yeah. really easily assimilated. Yes, it's, it's, I mean when you say metafiction, I would I would certainly agree that it's experimental in a deep way and very surprising uh, when thing when things begin to reveal themselves in that third sequence. And uh, a wonderful, as I say, I think uh, a great use uh, of genre to explore the wider realm mm-hmm. of literary fiction and literature itself. And, that, yeah. and I think that's a, you know, uh, it makes it really quite entertaining. Like you say, you're going to do a lot of double takes. And who can resist a novel that the second you finish it, it makes you absolutely want to go back and yeah. start it again. Right. <laughs> you just want to read it's, it uh, immediately. To make a bad pun on one of the main elements that you discover in the book, it's quite addictive, and uh, I wouldn't say it's metaphysical, it's metaphysical. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it at that. <laughs> huh? Absolutely. And uh, But we can't uh, forget our, our third um, novel. One I'd night. like to. <laughs> oh, you didn't like it? No. You didn't? No, I didn't. Oh, I really, I, I love uh, Colson Whitehead, and I think this is my favorite novel of his since The Intuitionist, to tell the really? truth. Really? I, uh, gee, I found it really a terrible failure. No, I didn't like it at all. Uh, you know, the what it reminded me of are the, 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 that faddish uh, series of books that's coming out, you know, Pride and Prejudice and the Zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found that he kind of turned this uh, this mashup uh, style on his head, and he writes with a kind of slightly austere, Austinish style about zombies. <laughs> and I just found it very off-putting and uh, boring, finally. I mean, when you think of what Max Brooks does with this, for example, you know, in World War Z, mm-hmm. I mean, this this is just lame. Oh no! Now, I, well, I liked World War Z, uh, and I, I I thought it was it was a fine novel. I really enjoyed this in terms because I liked the way he that um, he uh, kind of clears out 
all the detritus and all the expectations of zombie novels and then starts playing with you know the the leftover stuff and, and I think he's quite he's it's quite funny I don't think it's you know there's a temptation to think of this as satire and I don't think it's really satire I think he takes his subject really seriously that's what was so disturbing to me I mean, <laughs> well that's the prose so seriously I mean the prose just weighs down the plot uh, weighs down the, the, the genre material. Oh no, I I kind of liked it as, as, as that. As we a, as rarely we so rarely disagree. No, no, Wonderful. no, <laughs> good. Well, no, I I've a, I, I mean I really liked the way that um, it was not so nice that he took it so seriously and so kind of there's this kind of a, a bureaucratic. Uh, look at this stuff, and I think that's just so great because that's kind of what I, how I envision the apocalypse is not being, you know, it's not it's not going to be an adventure. It's just going to be a big mess <laughs> that uh-huh. we have to clean up. It's not going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's not going to you know be out. We're not all going to be out there uh, with Mad Max uh, riding around on motorcycles and going through flaming hoops. We're going to be out there picking up the garbage and dealing with people who don't even know what the heck is going on. I mean, you know, and I, too, I like this idea of, and I think this is really important uh, to the book, of people who haven't noticed that the world has ended. Mm-hmm. And I, because I, I actually think, too, uh, when you read a um, genre fiction, there's a tendency to think that, okay, this is really about the future in which it's set, mm-hmm. that somebody's trying to say, okay, the future's going to be like this, and we better not do this, or else we'll all right. be doomed. And it's really about the present. And it's really about the present. And mm-hmm. I actually think there's a, a, a fine argument to be made that the apocalypse happened about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, and uh, we're all just catching up. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's a, a you know a good part of what what's happening you know maybe as much as thirty years ago who knows, but uh, that uh, we passed the point of no return. And I think that uh, Whitehead does a great job of you know bringing that out. And I really like the prose. I love the characters, and I love the kind of setup. I had a I had a lot of fun with this book, and I thought it was really um, well wrought. The 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 plot is great. His vision, you know, he does some really interesting things with zombies and with the, uh, you know, a post-apocalyptic genre. I thought it was inventive in all the ways that so much fiction is not. And I can tell you that uh, uh, I, too, am quite tired of the, the mashups, which I don't think this really struck me as that, that kind of pride oh, and I, I think mashup. it was completely inadvertent. I think he, he tried to write seriously about a subject that, I mean, you just it's be like Henry James writing about what? I mean, when he writes a, when James writes a ghost story, the ghost never appears. Right? <laughs> well, it's it's the turn but, of the screw, and it's a classic. There's no reticence here, though. No. no. Well, we disagree. Uh, let's take a vote, right? <laughs> I guess we're uh, we're we're two up and one down, or so. That's you know, that's not bad. Well, maybe listeners can uh, let us know. Yeah. Well, what well, they think. Well, 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 except that condemns them to reading the book, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to do that to anyone. Well, uh, we know that we can uh, certainly, without hesitation, uh, recommend IQ84 by, by Haruki Murakami and uh, Assumption by Percival Everett, yes. and we'll let the readers decide on Coulson Whitehead for themselves. Yes. 
I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. He's the critic for NPR's All Con- Things Considered. His newest work of nonfiction is a collection of travel essays that will take you to a trance after breakfast. His newest novel is called Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. I enjoyed it, Rick. Even though we disagree, <laughs> always good to disagree. Yes. I think that's a the 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 foundation upon which uh, people can get some perspective. Yes. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.